This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello, welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on a streaming service and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker in the same genre or featuring the same star. I'm Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic. My blog is called Flaw on the Iris and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name's Stephen Cook. I'm a culture writer and multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network here in Halifax. And today we are talking about Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy, comedian, director, writer, star. Uh, We're looking at mostly his early stuff, but we're going to be checking out what he has to offer with his new film, Coming to America. Hi, and welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears. My name is Stephen Cook, and you are listening to this film podcast that is going to be taking a look at the work of Eddie Murphy in the wake of his return to Zamunda and coming to America, the sequel to the uh, wonderful comedy from the 1980s, Coming to America, which was uh, directed by... uh, John Landis. Well, John Landis is not with us uh, for reasons that we don't have to go into here, but uh, Eddie is back, and so are many of the familiar faces. Uh, yeah, from, best, best from not the, get into that. From the initial film. There's, there's lots of stuff online about their relationship and and uh, respective careers. So, uh, it's 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 back to Zamunda. I, I uh, think this is going to maybe kick off another wave of Eddie nostalgia because, of course, Eddie Murphy is on a bit of a roll lately. He uh, had a wonderful return to form with Dolomite Is My Name, the story of Rudy Ray Moore, comedian and filmmaker uh, from the 60s and 70s. And and uh, and that basically paved the way for coming to America to, to convince Paramount to bankroll a rather lavish sequel to the, uh, to the original hit. And um, so, of course, we have Eddie Murphy as Prince Akeem. We have Arsenio Hall as his friend and aide-de-camp, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, semi. Uh, and uh, we have a whole new bunch of family as well, because, of course, Pr- Prince Akeem is uh, many years older. He's married. He has uh, three very spirited and wonderful daughters. And uh, it's time for him to take on the throne. His father, probably by James Earl Jones, is uh, ready to pass on into the next world. And uh, he has to kind of be the patriarch uh, for a new generation. And that's basically where the story flows from, where the jokes flow from. But it's also a pretty big nostalgia trip (laughs) to the original film. And uh, I had the fortune of watching it without watching the first film first. Uh, I got to experience it with uh, only vague memories of having seen Coming to America, the original film, probably 20 years ago, something like that. And uh, that might have been the best way to experience it in a way, because uh, I I went back to Coming to America after watching the original and um, basically saw the bullet point list of of all the points from the first film that they felt compelled to uh, to tackle in the new film and uh it's it's great to revisit these characters and some of these situations but uh, i i i think i was better off going in cold with the, with the sequel 
Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I now I have a when I was a teenager, I think we're about the same age, Stephen. So Eddie Murphy was such a big deal in the eighties. You know, it was like Eddie Murphy and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone and Madonna. This was like there were these like kings of pop culture at the time. Murphy was right in there, and he made a lot of very funny R-rated comedies at the in the era. We're going to talk about a few of them. Um, One of them, maybe one of his biggest was uh, Coming to America, except actually Coming to America was his first, I believe, PG-rated or PG-13 rated. It wasn't R-rated uh, in 1988. I remember seeing it back in the day, but um, didn't really love it. I remember thinking, eh, it's funny, but it's not as funny as Beverly Hills Cop or 48 Hours. So I, I had a, some mixed feelings about it. Never watched it again. So then for this podcast, went back and watched it. It's on Amazon Prime, as is the new film coming to number two America. And, uh, you know, and I was like, okay, so I feel like the film's heart is in the right place. But uh, I didn't, I still didn't think, I just still kind of scratched my head as to why this film is so beloved in over time. But we, we talk more about the plot in a second, but you mentioned that coming to America, the sequel is, is kind of a, a very much a nostalgia fest. They're coming back and touching on all these points that kind of the comedic points of this earlier film. And I can't deny any of that. Craig Brewer is the director of the second, the new film. Uh, and he's, he's got, he clearly loves the material and you know, there, and I, I kind of, I'm okay with that, I guess, to some degree, because I feel like um, I, because I didn't love the first film so much, I felt sort of like, oh, this feels like a 21st century revisiting in a kind of charming, funny, and I got to say a little more politically astute way. Um, but, uh, you know, I get that some of this feels like a retread and I get that it goes slack in the middle because the fish out of water story is reversed. We find that Akeem, uh, in a kind of a creative way, they have kind of rewritten history to show that he uh, he uh, he spawned a uh, an American son, an illegitimate son, um, with uh, Leslie Jones. Yes. Which actually, I absolutely love the way they kind of worked her into the the story by reworking some of the uh, earlier footage from the previous film. Um, and uh, you know, and I I thought that was actually pretty cleverly done. Uh, I think there's some Irishman de-aging going on <laughs> in those flashback scenes. I think you might be right, except I think it's even it may be done better than the Irishman. Uh, yeah, and 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 uh, so you know you've got this this new this new son, and, and he's very nice, but he's not terribly uh, Germain Fowler. No offense, Mister Fowler, but he just doesn't have that kind of cult of personality that that uh, Murphy had and that thing that made I think the first film really watchable is how likable and and how good the uh, King uh, or Prince Akeem was in that early film um, so we've got him now and and we spend all this time with his son his son is just not that interesting so the fish out of water story where he's trying to get used to being a prince in an African kingdom uh, just feels a little bit uh, every time Murphy isn't on the screen or Murphy and Arsenio Hall as it is. I felt like the energy went out of the film a little bit. Um, you kind yeah. of wonder, because of course we have Tracy Morgan here playing um, uh, Jermaine Fowler's character, Lavelle. Uh, he plays his uncle and you kind of wonder, well, you know, what if Tracy Morgan had been, had been the son? And I guess he's maybe he's a bit long in the tooth for that kind of role now. But uh, if, you know, if they'd done this maybe 10 years ago, or so how that might have worked. Yeah, or they could have just made fun of it, you know, do, yeah, do the, the the sort of 
twins soon to be triplets. Have you heard about that? Eddie Murphy's doing uh, a sequel to Twins with uh, Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger called Triplets, where Murphy plays the third brother. I can see that. <laughs> you know, I, see that I mean, it's such a high concept and and kind of ridiculous, but you know, there it's, is this yeah, nostalgia, it's, right? It's twins. I mean, it's ridiculous on the face of it. Exactly. But, yeah. Uh, I, I think the original coming to America was a big deal because I don't think there'd been a big budget, you know, major studio Hollywood comedy, uh, that had such a predominantly African-American cast. And, uh, from what I gather, Eddie Murphy was, was, uh, you know, really in charge of that film as a, as a producer and, you know, as the originator of the story. And I think he also behind the scenes, uh, endeavored to make sure that there were a number of African-American crew members. Um, and, uh, you know, and it was a very positive, uh, film in a lot of ways presented its characters in a very positive light for the most part. And, uh, you know, I think it was very refreshing at the time. And, and I think, uh, you know, that film and just Eddie's career in general has paved the way for so many other performers. Um, uh, to, to, to prove that, you know, a, a black comedic star who's not Richard Pryor can actually, you know, make big at the box office. And we'll probably talk about that more as we get into some of the other films in his filmography. But I think coming to America was a real flowering of the promise that was shown in those earlier action comedies that he did to, to show that he had greater range. And of course, paved the way for his later career of making family comedies, which uh, we won't go into a lot of detail, but we'll discuss uh, probably in, in a later segment. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. And certainly, you know, it's a great cast in that earlier film. Uh, going back to watch it again, uh, Eric LaSalle Sal is Daryl, the heir to the soul glow fortune, yes. that very impressive hair product. Uh, I did enjoy that gag. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, James Earl Jones, uh, there is a non-speaking role for Cuba Gooding Jr. <laughs> Kid in chair. <laughs> um, Von D. Curtis Hall, Samuel L. Jackson is amazing in his one one scene role, just kind of like, oh, there's Sam Jackson. Amazing. Just showing up with a as a as a, a guy holding up a fast food restaurant. Uh, Louis Anderson, Ruben Santiago Hudson and a great cameo from Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy as the Duke brothers from Trading Places. One of uh, uh, Eddie Murphy's early great, you know, great roles. One of the sort of breakout role. He he made a uh, film, a comedy he made, I guess, kind of these days considered kind of a Christmas movie. But um, yeah, made with Dan Aykroyd. Very 80s, uh, very much a uh, kind of materialism uh, uh, comedy. But uh, about, uh, you know, the, the 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 little guys getting one over the big guys. And uh, and that is funny. And that actually that thread is continued in yes, the new we, film we, just we, briefly, um, which I, I definitely appreciated that that was another kind of joke that they decided to run with again. Yeah, the, it was nice to see the the Dukes in some form uh, in the new film, even even if uh, it's uh, you know obviously Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy are no longer with us. They couldn't go back to the cocoon. Um, I think maybe it's just Don Amici was in cocoon. I can't remember, but um, <laughs> I can't remember either. <laughs> but it was it was you know coming to America. I I, I like uh, I, I don't know that um, the Craig Brewer is necessarily the right director for this material. Like you say, he, he clearly loves the original film and wants to do justice to it. And, uh, and, and, and I think, uh, presents it, you know, th there's a lot of visual splendor. It, the film looks great. It, it, it moves pretty well, but I don't know the comedy, uh, especially sort of a, a, a more ribald vibrant comedy is kind of his thing. I mean, he, you know, he's, he's 
shown his skill in films like uh, Hustle and Flow and Black Snake Moan, and he did direct uh, Dolomite Is My Name. So obviously he and Eddie Murphy have a pretty good working relationship, which hasn't always been the case with uh, Murphy and some of his previous directors. Um, and and maybe that's what it came down to. Uh, Murphy knew it'd be a good time working with Brewer, at least a, you know that that they could uh, collaborate and um, uh, relate to each other on some level and. Uh, and that's, I guess, how the the best stuff in the movie works. Um, I, I think I had a little more fondness for the character of of Lavelle, played by Jermaine Fowler. He's a stand up comedian. I, th- I think he he does uh, have some chops. You're, he's not a, a very vibrant in your face character like Prince uh, uh, Prince Akeem was in the original Coming to America. And I I kind of wonder. He, he, I feel like he has um, Killmonger's haircut from Black. Black Panther. I don't know if that's on purpose. I because there obviously there there are jokes relating to the Lion King, and there are some Black Panther jokes. Um, you know, right? Uh, it, scattered throughout the new film, and um, and then there's even a segment where they talk about how lame obvious sequels are, which is not the first time that joke has been made in a sequel. <laughs> um, so that's not exactly fresh either. But um, but I feel like, yeah, I definitely feel like the pluses are are more than the minuses here. And, and Wesley Snipes as uh, the uh, the the kind of warlord neighbor from Nextoria. Yeah, that's um, a great gag. <laughs> I, I, you know, anytime he's on screen, because we haven't seen Wes, Wesley Snipes be funny in a long time. I mean, he's he's kind of come back. Uh, you know, we're seeing. I mean, he was in Dolomite, and we've seen him in some other things more recently. And it's great to have him back on screen. But you know, we always forget he was in something like To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Love Julie Newmar. You know that he does have comedic chops, and here he actually gets to use them um, as as the general, as you know, with his weird strut and his kind of uh, manic egotism, but also a certain likability, even though he's a tyrant you know you know an african despot but but somehow uh he makes the character work it makes him likable and it also allows him to bring back another gag involving his sister who was in the first film um and was was supposed to be uh, akeem's bride the first time around so uh you know that all ties rather nicely together but uh, yeah his his addition to the film is definitely a plus as well yeah absolutely and i in fact if if the movie had been just about the relationship between them about this general from nextoria and prince Sly, sorry king akeem uh i think that uh uh that would have been something that i i might have been more engaged with it just because really it just reverses the fish out of water story from the first film with the son who, uh, you know, I just didn't find myself as interested in him. I will say the things about the new film that I really liked, A, I think it's more politically astute than its predecessor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I thought that was, was you know, in fact, it made fun of some of the more obnoxious elements of the first film. Um, I, I, uh, I liked that um, the musical elements, uh, there's a great Prince tribute about halfway in that I thought was really well done. And uh, there's a couple of other prominent 90s uh, African-American musical acts that show up that I won't spoil, but they it's a delight to see them again. Uh, and so that's fun. But uh, yeah, there's just a, a, a sense of like this all being a big party and let's all just enjoy that. Um, on, on the flip side, there is some really dodgy uh, CGI to do with a lion that uh, that whole scene I just thought was like oh this is this is not good <laughs> um, but uh, it is it is uh, it is still I still think that there's 
I, I don't know that coming to the number two America deserves. I mean, you're you're right about the nostalgia, and you can take or leave that if you if you uh, if you find that a little bit stale and a little bit, uh, uh, you know. Well, so some people are really put off by it. I mean, I, you know, I, I definitely find myself in the liking this more than a lot of people can. But it, it's not very well. I mean, not that IMDb is anything to go by, but it's not very well rated there. And and you know. Doing the McDowell's restaurant thing, the takeoff of McDonald's that's in the original film, doing that under the opening credits, uh, you know, just, uh, I think, sent the wrong signal to a lot of people who are hoping for something a lot fresher than what this film is. But, um, you know, I th- I feel like they could have maybe pushed that further <laughs> into the movie somehow. Mm. Um you know that that maybe don't signal right off the bat that it's going to be a nostalgia fest um but but i guess they were just kind of setting things up and that's how they decided to go for it yeah you know and you know what something else that occurred to me while you're talking about how murphy brought in you know this largely black cast are uh, almost entirely and uh and you know supported african-american crew members um you know we are two white fellows in nova scotia here talking about these films i feel like in some respects maybe part of the problem that i had with the original film is that you know murphy made it for an african-american cast an Amer- american audience i mean uh that this is uh this is definitely aimed at them and i think i think maybe the sequel as well it's for people who really loved the first film, really felt connected to it, might find get the sort of warm and fuzzy with the new one. Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely a part of it. But but uh, it's not it's not hard for me to have a fondness for the for the original film and, and to see some of these characters. I was really happy to see Arsenio Hall back in good form because you know he he kind of went into talk show limbo uh, for a long time. And then we just didn't you know when the when his talk show kind of went off the airways, we just didn't see him for a long time, and uh, you know forgot that he was a comedian and that he is a pretty good comic uh, comedic uh, character actor uh, as as seen in the original film and i think here he he does get some some nice moments as, as some new characters and some familiar characters and uh, as much as we talked about eddie murphy coming back to form and also wesley snipes uh hopefully arsenio hall gets some residual uh good fortune career-wise out of this film as well because i think he's an he's an interesting cat who uh does uh does some good work here yeah and i yeah i agree with you there for sure it's nice to see him i i I, you know it's funny like there's been this whole um thing that murphy sort of started with the under the latex where he does the the characters in the barbershop and how he how are those guys still alive (laughs) (laughs) one of my notes how are these guys still um you know they they did that in the first film they come back again in the second film and uh you know i at first the first film it just felt like a vanity thing it's like why are they all playing these different characters under latex when it seems so painfully obvious it's it's them uh and you know maybe maybe that's part of the joke it's like we're supposed to recognize that it's actually those actors under the latex and okay okay maybe it's just not i just it's not working for me but seeing them do it again the second time i actually was like oh wow murphy spawned a whole there's a whole subgenre not only in his own career but other careers as well for african-american comedians you know playing multiple roles within under latex in in films and there's a whole you know it's like a, a subset of of comedy in, in american cinema and uh uh you know that's that's not something to sniff at that's it's kind of an accomplishment i gotta say and it's also extension of a of a sketch he did on or not a sketch but it was a filmed piece he did on saturday night live where they 
put them in makeup. I, I don't know how much was makeup and if there's some latex appliances as well, but basically they made him to look up, made him to look like a white man and send him out into the world to see what life is like for white people. And it's, it's, it's a great moment. It's, I don't know if it's on YouTube. I know they're very, um, stingy with the uh, Saturday night live stuff on YouTube it's been for taking it down and stuff, but it's a great, uh, it, it's definitely one of his great uh, Saturday night live moments. It's not one of his sort of stock characters and, uh, you know, a nice bit of social commentary as well. On this episode of Lends Me Your Ears, Stephen and I are talking about Eddie Murphy and uh, revisiting his early work specifically in this segment. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the films that made him a huge force in Hollywood in the 1980s. His first film right out of Saturday Night Live uh, was 48 Hours from 1982. Veteran director Walter Hill's Odd Couple Cop Picture. It is a relic of another time and is politically suspect as it gets in some ways, but it also set a template for a genre shift through the 1980s. You throw the mismatched stars together, a few shootouts, some action set pieces, some humor, and the movie sells itself. Now, what's funny in is 48 Hours is actually a straight-ahead cop drama through the first act. Nick Nolte plays Jack Cates. He's busy tracking down a couple of murderers in San Francisco as he neglects his relationship with Annette O'Toole's Elaine. And, you know, it's great to see Annette O'Toole. She always liked her. Um, now, he gets a tip that one of the bad guy's buddies, Reggie Hammond, Murphy, and he's 22 at this point, oh and the charisma on fire. He's in jail, so Kate springs him for 48 hours to help him track down the killers. Now, as a premise, that seems wildly implausible that, uh, you know, that they would allow him to uh, a 48 hour pass. But uh, Hill's filmmaking confidence carries the day with this film. Uh, it's great seeing some of uh, the cast from The Warriors. Uh, another one of my favorite of Walter Hill's films show up like David Patrick Kelly and James Remar. Uh, and again, strong support from uh, O'Toole and also from Brian James, another character actor who we saw a lot of in the 80s. Now, you know, I think I need to say right off the top that, you know, it's Kate's character is racist, homophobic, and it's really kind of it's it's a little jarring to see some of that played for laughs. But, and an alcoholic. Oh, an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, but the movie is honest about his being a jerk, which kind of I don't think it makes it OK necessarily, but at least it's not. It's like this is the, who this guy is and he is an unpleasant human being and actually being with Murphy, Murphy kind of changes him, I think. And that's kind of his character, Kate's character arc. And Nolte is just terrific. But, but Murphy is a star right out of the gate. He's incredibly charismatic in this film. Yeah. Nolte was top build. Of course it was Eddie Murphy's uh, feature debut. And, um, and, uh, you know, that those roles were definitely reversed when another 48 hours came out a number of years later. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to forget how abrasive Nolte is in this film. They do soften his edges somewhat in the the follow up, but uh, here uh, he's he's pretty hard to take in some ways. He and he you know he uses some very uh, racist language uh, when dealing with uh, with Murphy, and then but later I think they they they, they try to soften that by him apologizing because he's a i'm just saying that because i you know i want to get on your nerves or you know show you who's boss or whatever but it's like well it still doesn't make it okay uh, <laughs> but uh but it was a different time it was the 1980s and um this this feels like it really set the template for a whole string of films 
with different stars and different studios, different filmmakers that followed. And I, f- I feel like uh, between this and Lethal Weapon, like a whole genre was created. Now, I know, uh, I think Freebie and the Bean, um, uh, a comedy from the 70s with Alan Arkin and James Caan, um, was kind of the original you know, odd couple cop movie. Uh, but, uh, it certainly wasn't as big a hit as 48 hours where, you know, we get the tough lieutenant who's asking for Nick Nolte's badge, you know, and and all that kind of stuff, you know, and how many times we go on to see that. In fact, to the point where the same actor who plays that lieutenant does the same thing in the last action hero, the Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) film, he plays Schwarzenegger's lieutenant in the film, doing a parody of his role in 48 hours, which is just, you know, which, which shows you how, for lack of a better word, iconic, uh, some of the stuff in this movie is, but you know, I, I remember seeing this at the time. And of course, knowing Eddie Murphy from TV and not being really prepared for, um, how well he would carry a film, um, and, and basically steal it from out from under the stars, uh, nose, uh, in the process. And, um, and it it's still pretty exciting. I mean, I, I mean, we still have to deal with cops going to a strip bar to look for clues or talk to suspects, whatever. What for whatever reason they have to go to a strip bar, uh, it, you know, that became a cliche real quick. Uh, and uh, but we'd see it over and over again. And scenes like uh, Eddie Murphy uh, pretending to be a cop in a redneck country bar. Uh, you know, is are the things that we really remember from this movie and, and watching him cut loose uh, and, and walking a fine line between comedy and drama. He He's, um, he's you know, so self-assured. And uh, you kind of wonder why maybe he didn't do, try to do uh, more straight stuff sooner um, in his career than he would, you know, later on. But, uh, you know, I guess this, the studio, you know, he's under contract to Paramount and they kind of wanted to keep him on a certain career path i guess but but you know he demonstrates that he could probably handle uh, a serious role sooner than later but and and i think he gives indications throughout his career that that's what he wanted to do um but but here he just uh, straddles that line so well and that's a big part of what made him a star that you could take him seriously while you're laughing at him at the same time yeah and, uh, you know as with a lot of comedians you know the robin williams of the world there's there's a lot of pain and and uh sometimes anger beneath a lot of that comedy and and uh, and they get to to use that in their more dramatic parts uh i definitely felt that was the case with murphy who who uh with this film you know and then i remembering very clearly being a teenager and listening to delirious his uh stand-up from i think 83 and and it was just so sweary and so uh foul-mouthed and of course at that age i love that that was part <laughs> of the the transgressiveness of it that a, a comedian would be that you know that obnoxious and 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 uh but so funny too um you know and, and i think that's what bl- that well, that's a blue Eddie Murphy just huge all of a sudden by 1984 he was just everywhere and uh yeah he did you mentioned he did come back for another 48 hours that was in 1990 uh and it's just feels like a sort of tired retread of a better movie which is exactly what it is but it does put Nolte and Murphy together again their chemistry lights up the screen when they're together in that film it gives Murphy another chance to sing Roxanne which was one of the clips that you know was very popular from the first film um but you know the plot is is pretty rote and uh you know Cates is a lot less racist than he used to be but the sequel feels sort of more broy and sexist probably because there's no Annette O'Toole in it uh unfortunately she's really missed um but uh yeah I don't think it's essential I mean if you're really interested you might want to see it and also to you know maybe explore 
like what is the deal with steel drums or synthesized steel drums <laughs> in the soundtrack of Hollywood action movies from the 1980s? They're just everywhere. It's like it's do, like do, 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 do. yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Uh, it's just very weird. Um, anyway, yeah. So so I don't know if if how you felt about another 48 hours, but I don't think it's essential. No, it, it's it's got retread written all over it. I saw it when it came out. I have not seen it since 1990. So let's let's do the math here. That's Let's just say it's a long time ago. Let's not do the math. Uh, I did not remember a darn thing about it. And uh, so it was interesting to revisit it in the sense that like, uh, this is not, but I know I saw it and I'm just, just like, none of this is ringing a bell. Like, and I remember so much stuff from, from the original, which is of course much older uh, and, and very little of this registered in, in my memory banks. Um, you know, we've got uh, Nick Nolte. Uh, going up against some corrupt cops and the internal affairs is on his case. We got Kevin Tig, who used to be on emergency playing a creepy bad guy, which he was his, basically his second career was playing creepy bad guys um, after being a hero on emergency. And uh, you know, and it, it does the, uh, it does the kind of meta humor in some places, you know, where, where I think somebody says, you know, getting into a bar fight, it's a damn cliche. You know, <laughs> it's just, and it's, yeah, and 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 reading up on the film a little bit, it was also a bit of a mess in the editing room that they they cut about a quarter of its running time after its first preview or so, uh, you know, after some sneak previews. And um, you know, Brian James, a lot of his character got completely cut out. Uh, the lieutenant from the first film is like you might see him in the background of in, in the in the cop shop, you know, in the detective's room, but he doesn't actually have any lines or anything like that. Like he he actually filmed a role for the movie, uh, but you're not going to see it in this film. So it's it's got that cash in slapdash feeling about it, and uh, you know I can see why it's not very well thought of now. Yeah, no, absolutely. But but the films that he is remembered for very much so, Trading Places from 1983. You mentioned it earlier. Uh, it's you know, it, it is also dated, but it has a lot of of outrageous laughs as well. Uh, one of the Jamie Lee Curtis is very good in that film yeah. too. I think she gets overlooked a little bit, and it was great to see her yeah. in a comedy like that. Yeah, for sure. And uh, she after that, I mean, I guess what Halloween was the movie that she was known for previously. Initially, that? yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, it's pretty great. One movie that I did see the trailer for, but didn't revisit, and I'm probably good that I didn't. Is Best Defense from 1984 <laughs> with Dudley Moore. Um, yeah, that's not one that is is necessarily very well remembered. And uh, I I think Murphy was edited into that film. After like the film was a, I mean, it was a flop anyway, but I think the, they actually decided that, oh, this film needs some juice. So they came up with a character for Eddie Murphy to play after the fact, after basically, I think that's, I think that's the case. He plays like a soldier out in the desert somewhere or something like that. Cause it's all about the arms yeah. race and stuff like that. And, and I think they created a whole bunch of scenes with Eddie Murphy to kind of juice up the film, but I don't think it helps very much. No. And that he and Moore just don't connect at all at any point. I don't think on the film, as no. I recall, I mean, I have seen it, but I didn't go back to watch it for this conversation. Uh, but what I did go back to watch is Beverly Hills cop, which I think still holds up as, you know, the peak of Murphy popularity from the 80s, but um, or at least amongst white audiences, I think. I mean, it just, you know, if he wasn't big before this, this was the, the thing that blew the roof off the place. And I remember it very fondly directed by Martin Brest, a screenplay by Daniel Petrie Jr. Um, and uh, so yeah. no Nova Scotia connection. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I was actually surprised to see his name. Um, but uh 
it is uh it's it's a remarkable and still very funny film it's about a detroit cop axel foley played by murphy investigating the murf of the murder of an old friend in beverly hills while basically bearing witness to the rampant consumer culture going on in la as well as being black from a working class background and feeling very much again fish out of water story um now overlooking a streak of homophobic humor in the film and uh, the baked in idea that cops breaking the rules makes them better at their jobs, which is another 80s cop comedy drama action movie trope. Um, The film still delivers a lot of warmth, mostly riding on Murphy's unhinged talent. There's, um, you know, it's again to come back to the language something that people might not think about right now watching this film is that in 1984, it was still a novelty to hear people in a comedy use the F word so flagrantly. And, uh, you know, Murphy had already established that his use of language in his standup. And I, it made him kind of in a weird way, kind of a folk hero, at least amongst, you know, teenagers of my age, I recall how, how much we love that. Um, so anyway, watching it again, the scene between Axel and Bronson Pinchot's Serge in the art gallery is still really something. I feel like they, I don't know if that was written or they just improv that whole scene, but it's so funny. Um, and everyone in the film is really good. Paul Reiser, Ronnie Cox, Stephen Burkoff as a as the villain. Of course, he played a villain in many other movies. Uh, and watch out for Damon Wayans, who gets a scene as the banana man. <laughs> One scene, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that Harold Faltermeyer electronic score, it's still kind of awesome. It is here. If you watch the sequels, you, you start to tire of it. <laughs> Especially if you watch the sequels one after the other. I don't recommend doing that so uh-huh. much. But uh, it, yeah, Beverly Hills Cop, uh, you know, obviously Eddie Murphy shined in, in um, 48 hours. Uh, two years later, he's making Beverly Hills Cop 2. Uh, and he was confident enough in the first film. But here, he's super on point and and uh he his it's interesting i mean axel foley is kind of just a variation on reggie from 48 hours but but this he's got the it's this mixture of cockiness but also with authority i mean he's a you know he's a person in an authoritative position and uh so he's able to combine that with the with his street smarts and and uh so there, there is a subtle difference in the character uh between axel and reggie and uh you know he's uh He's moved by, you know, a genuine compassion in some ways to find the guy who killed his buddy. Um, you know, that's he's definitely got a strong motivation. And uh, throughout the film, you know, I wrote this down that that he clearly loves being a movie star at this point. Like he just revels in in taking command of the camera and, and the screen and and making the most of it in a way that uh, not a lot of comedic performers are able to do or willing to do. And uh, there's a, and he, he exhibits a very, a very much a control of what he's doing through the course of this film. And uh, it's, it's astonishing to go back and watch it. And you see that light fade over time, I think, because I, I don't know if, if, uh, the process of making films warm down or just trying to find concepts like these that were fresh, um, uh, may not have, uh, you know, been as strong, but you know, here he's, he's enjoying what he's doing. He's loving every minute of it. And he's completely focused on, uh, on the task at hand. And, and, uh, it really shows. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. He seems to really be having a good time. Uh, and as you say, that tends to, to fade in his later, some of his later work. Certainly, Beverly Hills Cop 2 from 1987, he he gets, uh, Murphy gets story credit here, so he's still very much involved in the creative process. Um, 
the second film is directed by Tony Scott, who has got such a smooth 80s and subsequently 90s style. He loves the Venetian blinds, the angled light, the giant fans, characters in silhouette, a golden light behind them. It's just like the the, the stylistic tropes that Scott was part of uh, bringing to Hollywood are so uh, clear in this film. And some of that, I guess it just depends on whether you enjoy that or not. I, I it, it has a nostalgic vibe for me. I, I don't mind it, but uh, it is a little overpowering. He also loves guns. He loves a Ferrari 308. He loves using women as props, which is pretty awful. Uh, and uh, especially since uh, Lisa Albacher, who played Axel's good friend Jenny Summers in the first film, is missing in this one. And, and that's never really explained. You know, she was his good friend in Beverly Hills who helped connect him to the uh, the, the, the plot of the first film. Uh, you know, he's when we meet him in this one, he's undercover. He gets a call from the chief and Beverly Hills cops, uh, Bogomil, uh, Ronnie Cox. Great to see him um, again, who I guess is they're planning a fishing trip together or something. It, it, this is the part of the film that kind of <laughs> surprised me. Like he's really buddies with these guys now. He hangs out with them, you know, in between the movies, um, which is a little hard to. Take, yeah, but. a bit of a hard, bit of a stretch anyway. So, of course, something bad happens to him. And then uh, Axel has to go back to Beverly Hills, despite the fact that his his boss in Detroit absolutely is opposed to that. Um, so, yeah. And then John Ashton and Judge Reinhold and uh, are back. And uh, jewel thief Brigitte Nielsen looking about eight feet feet tall in her none more 80s asymmetrical sunglasses. Oh, and Jurgen Prochnow and Dean Stockwell. Uh, are great as part of the villainous character characters in the film and nice to see Chris Rock and Gilbert Gottfried in small roles. I, uh, I, you know, it is, it is again, it's all about Murphy. And if you like him, there's enough here, I think to, to, you know, maybe justify watching the film. Yeah. It's, it's a better sequel to its original than another 48, another 48 hours is to its original. But, uh, I still kind of like halfway through the film was trying to like, what the, is the goal here? <laughs> this is, I mean, he's trying to solve the murder of his, his buddy or, or the shooting of his buddy. But, um, at the same time, it's like, you know, there's these alphabet crimes happening and, and, you know, with Bridget Nielsen and, and, uh, Jurgen Prochnow scheming to, pull off these things and that culminates at a racetrack uh, robbery. And, and I, I, I just found it all felt like a loose assemblage of parts that, uh, you know, that not only Tony Scott, but also the producers, Simpson and Bruckheimer, who I think are really putting their stamp on the film here along with Scott. Whereas I feel like the original was maybe more of a Martin Brest kind of film. Whereas here it's really a Bruckheimer Simpson film with that high gloss, high concept, low cohesion mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of factor of that would, be the you know be the the tone of a lot of their productions and uh you know but but we get a lot of axel and what what axel does best and i'm going deep 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 undercover deep yes <laughs> so you know i wrote that we, we get a lot of what the audience or what the producers think the audience wants which is axel's double talk doing a lot of character voices getting the upper hand on snooty beverly hills types and a lot more harold faltemeyer <laughs> <laughs> yeah i liked his i liked his um uh, and a strip club. Yeah, of course, a strip club. Got to be that. That's got to be in there. I, the cop stuff generally is pretty lame. And the the sort of fetishing, fetishizing guns, which just feels like that's that's aged very poorly. But but yeah, Murphy's uh, humor 
you know, Johnny Wishbone, the the, the <laughs> St. Croix psychic extraordinary, that stuff I, I really liked. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it's kind of a mixed feeling about Beverly Hills Cop 2. We really don't need to say too much about Beverly Hills Cop 3 from 1994, other than it was directed by John Landis. It was written by diehard writer Stephen E. D'Souza. Uh, you know, say what you will about Scott's style uh, or the producer's style. At least they had one. At this yes. point, there is not much going no. on here other than Landis's likes to cast, you know, recognizable directors and in cameos, including George Lucas, Barbie Schroeder, John Singleton, uh, even Ray Harryhausen is in here somewhere. Um, you know, and there's a man. It's just it's really really awful the film it's has something to do with axel going back to california and investigating a uh a theme park uh where there's some bad stuff going on uh, at one point axel rescues a couple of kids at a malfunctioning theme park ride and it's just so clearly that the the stunt man is not him it's just really badly shot and you're just I, at that point i was like just someone shoot me yes well I, I i made it all the way through i actually did not see this film until now because I, at the time it came out, I was basically warned off of it um, where, you know, I had a friend who saw it and said, you know, unless you want to see a very well-known director who you wouldn't expect to do this kind of cameo um, in a cameo, there's no reason to see Beverly Hills Cop 3. And it turns out he was right. Um, you know, the, the, it's uh, Murphy's working with Landis again. I, I think he maybe took some pity on him <laughs> and, and his career was following uh, the Twilight Zone incident, uh, which and he really clearly shouldn't have. Uh, and, and from all reports, they were like oil and water through the whole thing. Like uh, the director wanted to make it, you know, more comedy, more like Blues Brothers-y, I guess. And, and Murphy wanted to kind of maybe return to the more hard-nosed tone of the original Beverly Hills Cop. So they had basically a star and a director trying to go in two completely different directions um and the result is this so yeah unless you're super curious uh or a completist uh this is one to avoid yeah and i would say serge as Br bronson pinchot's character comes back briefly as a he's become a survivalist equipment salesperson i kind of thought that was a decent gag uh, with a and there's a freaky ad for a machine gun that's also a microwave oven uh john saxon is in there and canadian tough guy actor stephen mccaddy is in. anagan ishborn i think or is, is he? he he's from nova scotia originally okay. yeah yeah so you know there's something if you really need a reason to watch it there's something but but maybe not hi i'm Lindsay cameron wilson host of the food podcast but you know what it's not just about food it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food the food podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale how about that you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears and this look at the career and films of Eddie Murphy in light of his recent return to the screen. Not the big screen. <laughs> it's it's Amazon Prime, although I feel like it was meant to be a big screen film given the amount of pageantry and, and the scale of the film. But coming to America... Um, or coming to America too? No. Um, uh, I feel like uh, they basically put it on Prime because they knew that there was no chance of anyone seeing it in theaters, uh, and, which is a shame. But, uh, you know, the, certainly Eddie Murphy has a string of, of many worthwhile films and, and maybe some hidden gems that uh, are worth going back and revisiting if, you, if you're enjoying uh, 
seeing his name and uh, career splash all over the place, including here. And so right now we're going to look at a film that I think a certain generation has a fondness for uh, because it was his first kind of attempt at a family film, and that is The Golden Child. And The Golden Child was directed by Michael Ritchie, who's um, a director who's was pretty adept at satiric comedy, if you think of his career of making films like, I believe, uh, The Candidate, and I think maybe The, the Bad News Bears. Yeah, and, yeah. It's, he's had a weird career. He directed Semi-Tough and, yeah. uh, and Downhill Racer, oh, and Racer and Fletch, like a bizarro mixed bag of, uh, of films. Some great, though. Yeah, Fletch, probably the last good uh, Chevy Chase movie. So, so <laughs> you know, he's he's... He's in his element, but but Eddie Murphy's not really making a flat-out comedy here. This is a fantasy film, almost like a fantasy martial arts film. And I don't think it was terribly successful at the time. I mean, I did not see it when it came out. I only saw it a little more recently when I, I heard some people talking about seeing it as a kid and how much they enjoyed the mix of comedy and av- adventure. And maybe maybe it was kind of something to watch after you've gotten tired of watching Goonies a uh, hundred times over. And it's, it's almost like Eddie Murphy's version of Big Trouble in Little China. It's very similar plot-wise and in the use of, um, you know, Asian fantasy action elements in the course of the film. And uh, basically the gist of it is uh, Charles Dance is a big baddie who wants to kidnap a young, gifted Dalai Lama-esque child, but who has special powers. And uh, he wants to kidnap this child. Clearly he's uh, he wants to gain from his powers or maybe he's a threat. I don't want to give too much away because there is there are some reveals later in the film. And uh, Eddie plays a Chandler Jarrell who's a finder of lost kids. He's basically a detective who specializes, or at least wants to specialize in finding lost children. I don't know what his rate of success is at this. Uh, the film doesn't really tell us, but um, but uh, he's basically on the lookout for uh, a lost uh, a lost uh, child in his neighborhood in Los Angeles. And then Ki Nang, uh, a mysterious uh, and beautiful Tibetan woman, shows up and asks him, to find the golden child because she's heard that he's the expert at this sort of thing and that he is in fact the chosen one to accomplish this task. And basically that's what we get. We get, um, we, we, we get taken into this world where there's a 300 year old woman who's part dragon and, and all this stuff. And I don't know how the, the reality stuff meshes with the, the comedy stuff um, quite completely, but it's it's a lot more charming than I expected, and I ended up liking this film a lot more than I expected. I did see it back in the day, and I remember enjoying it then. You know, I mentioned earlier that I thought uh, I thought maybe Coming to America wasn't R-rated. This is the one, actually, that uh, this was the first of Eddie Murphy's films that wasn't R-rated, so that they aimed for a broader audience, and, uh, you know, I don't think this was a big hit at the time. I, I liked it, but I think watching it again, it is that fast-talking Eddie Murphy persona, but in this very strange supernatural crime thriller. And I kind of enjoyed the parts of it where his sense of humor actually works with this material, the gags where he's basically making fun of the mysticism and all the tropes of a of this kind of a movie. That He rolls his eyes at the right moments, and that I really did enjoy. I, I did wonder, though, I thought there might be more martial arts, and there just, there just isn't in the film. No. Um, but, uh, yeah. We, we it, get a fight in a biker bar another yeah. 
staple exactly. of the Exactly. Exactly. And Charles Dance is is great. I, I I did enjoy that he's he's called Sardo Numspa, or Murphy <laughs> calls him Brother Numsy. <laughs> he plays a you know, he's such a, a straight man in the film and he he does that very well. Um and uh, Charlotte Lewis, who had uh not I, I think at the time she was kind of being, you know, an op possibility to be a new star and i don't know that it quite worked out that way for her but uh she's she's uh, a warmth in the film that i i did enjoy and and uh yeah it's it has you know those painfully 80s score and stylistic conceits and the whole eastern mysticism thing is, is problematic but uh but they um you know and i enjoy how they make a big deal about charlotte and eddie going to tibet but naturally all their scenes are shot in studio oh yeah uh and the special effects are pretty bad uh but yeah i wouldn't say i i it was it was a it was a a a struggle to watch it like i did i did enjoy it i actually kind of like the old school special effects especially in the big ending sequence um uh which where where it's kind of like there's some stop motion i think but also Uh some kind of clever camera trickery happening i actually i mean it's it's obviously today would be done with computers and look really slick and a lot more phantasmagorical but i i like how they handled it and i like the kind of handmade feel of those special effects and it kind of suits uh, this kind of odd little film plus we get we get um victor wong and james hong both uh from who are also in big trouble in little china who, who are both great here in, in character roles so uh you know the, the, they're terrific asian american character actors and they're always uh, wonderful to see in anything so that you know and i think they're they're pretty well used here as well uh so yeah, a nice little surprise from early in his career that I was uh, happy to finally get around to. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot of these movies, interestingly, are on Amazon Prime. Not that we're necessarily promoting that particular streaming service over any other. But uh, if you're a Murphy fan, you can find a bunch of stuff there, including a number of his family films. Now, we didn't go back to watch The Nutty Professor or Dr. Doolittle or Shrek or Norbit or, you know, other ones like Daddy Daycare. Uh, there's There are a number of films out there. And it's, it's funny, in my head, I sort of felt like Eddie Murphy went away, but he was just making a lot of family movies through those years, and they were very popular. Um, Mulan. I, I saw Daddy Daycare. <laughs> I saw it on a triple bill at the Brackley Beach Drive-In in Prince Edward Island. It was a, a triple bill of Daddy Daycare, Hollywood Homicide, and I think the second Charlie's Angels film. Wow. Yeah, that was a, that was a, that was an endurance struggle. I mean, Daddy Daycare had some fun stuff in it. Steve, I remember Steven Zahn is in it and he's he's fun to watch, but yet not not essential in any way shape or yeah. form. Yeah. Um so, you know, he made films like Holy Man and The Haunted Mansion and things I'd never even heard of that I was able to find. A Thousand Words, Mr. Church and Meet Dave. Now, some of these films were not well reviewed and I don't know if anyone went to see them, but he did have a few critical hits during that era. Bowfinger in 1999 with Steve Martin. He he did the musical Dreamgirls in 2006 that was quite well reviewed and, and I think Oscar nominated. And Tower Heist from 2011, which is an action picture I remember being pretty good um now one of the movies that i had never seen before but we rewatched was metro from 1997 directed by thomas carter it's a slick 90s action picture and murphy plays scott roper a cop and hostage negotiation negotiator in san francisco who has a soft spot for betting on the ponies and uh it's it's a more straight ahead kind of action film with a little bit of comedy here and there it, it feels like a bit of a return to to the beverly hills cop era uh maybe maybe more hard-edged but uh yeah i actually found this to be uh, a worthwhile watch and uh 
you know, and it had it had real moments that I I enjoyed. Largely, you know, the villain of the piece, Michael Wincott, who is a, one of the best bad guys from the 1990s and a Canadian. He's he's great in it. So uh, it helps that he's given such a big part in the film, and then it really becomes this dichotomy between the antagonist and protagonist. You know, and the bad guy is very very bad. Yeah, I remember this coming out and being pretty much dismissed right off the bat as being fairly generic action fair, and it does feel like almost the end of the era of that decade's slick nonsensical you know police centered action films uh you know i mean no wonder they switched to superheroes as kind of their template for for uh the modern day action movie but uh you know it, it does feel like the end of an era but i do like murphy a lot in this film it was a real surprise you know because i'd always assumed it was just kind of a dud um but uh, but here he plays, you know, he's not playing Axel Foley or a variation on that kind of character. He's He's got some trauma from his years uh, in action, and he's also a, a bit of a gambler, which is an interesting character uh, trait that uh, is something that's kind of new for uh, for a Murphy character. And uh, yeah, it is it is a little tougher and, and um, you know, more. Uh, you know, I'm trying to describe, but but you know, there, there's a bit more more grit than uh, the, the, maybe that what we were hoping to see in another 48 hours actually turns up here. And I think maybe that's uh, you know, Murphy was fully in control of this production and wanted to get away from what had happened with uh, Beverly Hills Cop three and make the kind of action film that he wanted to make and a character that had uh, a bit more depth to it. And I think I think we do get that. And you know, when when as the film goes on, it, some of the generic of it does kind of seep in around the edges you know you, you know that his ex-girlfriend is probably going to be uh you know a damsel in distress as it were yeah um, not once but, but twice yeah. carmen yogo she deserves better <laughs> she, in this yeah film. she definitely could have been better used and that's and that's a cliche that we saw continue and it's you know a whole you know now it's it's being that kind of thing is is going by the wayside as we speak but but uh you know man that thing stuck around for a long time that that whole cliche and it, it is fully in evidence here yeah no absolutely but but i still found it entertaining film overall and uh yeah i was glad to check that out um you know i might end up watching mulan again at some point and some of those maybe and shrek he was very very funny as the donkey so yeah through, so, you know, through several sequels he's still the, the highlights of those films of those films ways. indeed but uh one film i did watch uh you know fairly recently is dolomite is my name from 2019 you mentioned it earlier uh um, we talked about the original Dolomite. This is a biopic about Rudy Ray Moore. And we talked about that in an episode uh, number 55 of Lens Me Your Ears, where we discussed a few of the bright lights of black exploitation. Um, he was an unlikely independent film hero in the 1970s, and Murphy plays him. And it's a really charming film. Craig Brewer, uh, director of Coming to America, gives Murphy his best role in years, I would say. And, uh, you know, uh, Moore is is such an ambitious and irreverent character. It's perfect for the kind of energy that Murphy has always brought to his roles, at least to the roles where he's really cared. <laughs> yes. And he does here. So, uh, you know, another great support from Keegan-Michael Key and Craig Robinson, Chris Rock, Wesley Snipes, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, so nice to see Snipes again making movies where he's he's so, you know, he's so terrific. Uh, now he needs to make, you know, some kind of um, an action movie return again, a quality action movie hopefully bring blade into the mcu that's all they got to do i think it's gonna well it's gonna happen except uh, you know uh snipes won't be playing the role i bet you i bet you they'll they'll give him a part though i wouldn't be surprised um well i i I love dolomite is my name i I think uh, and uh, because i 
I love the work of Rudy Ray Moore and uh, and the the Dolomite movies that he turned out in the 1970s. They are unbelievable. You have to see them. Uh, I don't even know if this film quite does them justice, although it does come close. Uh, I think a big thing about this film, of course, is the script by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, the folks who gave us uh, the Ed Wood script uh, right. yeah, for yeah. Tim Burton. And uh, I think... Ultimately, I think that's what Eddie needs, uh, what Eddie Murphy needs the most at this point in his career is good scripts. Um, you know, I, I mean, coming to America is fine. It's charming. It, it does what it needs to do. But, you know, it could have done with uh, some more depth in the script department. And this shows what Murphy can do with, uh, with some good work, uh, you know, a foundation of a good script to, to work with. That wraps up this edition of Lens Me Your Ears, looking at the career and films of Eddie Murphy. A lot of fun stuff to watch, a lot of fun stuff to revisit. You might want to temper some of your expectations with some of the older films. The, some of the attitudes uh, don't quite hold up 30 years later, 40 years later even in some cases, but there's still a lot of fun if you uh, watch them in the right spirit. And there's lots of other films. We mentioned uh, Bowfinger briefly. Uh, Boomerang is uh, uh, an underrated comedy of his. I re I rewatched. I, I watched uh, the haunted mansion actually <laughs> oh yeah i'm just curious because like i love the ride so much as a kid uh it's not great but um <laughs> okay but there's some fun stuff in there uh th there's some fun stuff in it murphy seems reasonably invested in it and uh, jennifer tilly is great as that head in the fortune teller's crystal ball uh and on, on terrence stamp actually it's worth it for the terrence stamp performance as the creepy butler um <laughs> but uh it's 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 not i mean it does feel like an ad for the ride but it has its moments but uh, anyway I hope you enjoyed this look at his film uh, career and and uh, seek out some of the titles you haven't seen I'm sure there's got to be some he's made so many films over the years and um, my name is Stephen Cook and it's been a pleasure to be here with you today you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E I'm also on Twitter uh, named after my blog Flaw in the Iris and uh, Lens Me Your Ears has a Twitter account as well and a Facebook page where you can feel free to leave comments and so on uh, it would be great to hear from you. Uh, we'd like to extend our thanks, as always, to the folks at CKDU FM 88.1 here in Halifax for the use of their studios. We're very happy to be back in those studios and bringing you the show. And also, everyone at the Village Soundcast Network who get this, they get the show sounding so nice and up online for all the podcast platforms. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Ciao. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lens Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. <laughs>